0: Well, good Monday morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Community Connection. It's International Women's Day, a day to celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. All this week on the show, we'll hear from teachers, artists, and grassroots organizers, starting today with Dr. Jessica Rogers, Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at SUNY Potsdam, about her work that has taken her across the world. Good morning, Jess. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. You have a long and amazing resume beginning uh, with your work in Kenya in 2001, researching the migration patterns of zebras. Tell us about that. Yeah,
1: Um, it was the only job I got out of college. Um, Mm -hmm. My undergrad advisor was looking for somebody to run his project, specifically looking at how the behavior of zebras was going to affect conservation. So I moved to Kenya 10 days after graduating and spent 11 months taking photographs, digital photographs with a very um, large digital camera of hundreds and thousands of zebras facing left. So then I could barcode their necks to get individual um, recognition. And then we were looking at early GPS points and trying to prove that this particular population of zebras didn't migrate anywhere. And after that time, plus the previous years of data collection, we were able to prove that this particular population on the central plateau of Kenya did not migrate with the rains like the Serengeti populations Mm. that we were so aware of. And so that was really going to affect their conservation status. That was a big part of um, pushing me in the direction of linking... Sort of behavior either animal behavior or plant behavior if you will to conservation how do we protect them how do we integrate these ideas together so i got a really big sense of hmm. how conservation biology works wow. um working in kenya with this first job out of college how up close
0: and personal did you get to the zebras
1: sometimes very close but because it's a wild and active ecosystem there were lions and leopards cheetahs, and most importantly, elephants everywhere. So all of my work was done from the inside, the relative safety, probably imagined safety of a tiny mm. little vehicle. Oh. So I could get in up to five or ten feet, but I was still in my car.
0: Wow. Life-changing experience, I would think.
1: Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, the best version of this, I was driving through, um, so the dip between two hills in Swahili is called a lugga. Um, we might call it a valley or a stream bed, except it can't, It may or may not have water. And I was driving through one to get to the Libra population on the other side. And all of a sudden, I hear this loud trumpet as this elephant, I had no idea was in the trees, wow. comes trumpeting through. And thankfully, I was still in second gear. If I'd been in first, I'm sure I would have stalled and he would have crushed the truck. But I made it up the other side, my heart pounding. So lots of field adventures <laughs> that you don't plan for. <laughs> And thankfully, I survived all of them. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, that work set you up for your next job at the Bronx Zoo. You built websites for conservationists in 53 countries, right?
1: I did. I moved from the very rural parts of central Kenya to Brooklyn and then commuted every day to the Bronx Zoo. Um, I worked for their international conservation program. I assisted researchers who lived and worked in, in Asia and parts of Africa. And they needed ways to communicate with donors and with the public to make their um, work really clear. And so I would help them build websites and fact sheets that would be sent to donors. So I got to work really carefully and very virtually with dozens of really amazing researchers who were on the front lines of doing conservation all over the world. Some Americans, most of them were from their respective countries, Cambodians, Indonesians, um, and working with partners in those countries and in the U.S. and Europe. So it was a very cool global conservation unit.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that conversation was amazing because it's coming from all these different conservationist perspectives.
1: Right, exactly. Like the biggest goal for conservation in the People's Democratic Republic of Laos at the time was how do we build the infrastructure so that we can protect our own species? So we spent a lot of time helping to get PhDs and work in master's and advanced degrees for Laotian people to run their own country. And so the program was always designed for WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society, to step away. But the way they devoted the money was to build the infrastructure. So that was an interesting program to try to sell the donors because you weren't there weren't any fluffy tigers or um species that were fun to say we're protecting. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're building infrastructure so that the country can make its own decisions on how it protects its wildlife.
0: Uh, Potsdam is where you, you grew up. You came back about a decade ago after finishing your PhD. You're now working with students mm-hmm. on several projects, one I know intimately, uh, one that looks at the invasive species Purple Loose Strife. In the North Country. This has been a long-standing issue for for decades. What do you you like about being in the classroom that you didn't get working in the field?
1: Working in the classroom is such a eye-opening experience for me every single time. Um, I get a new class and I'm teaching a slightly different topic. I've developed, I think at this point, it's more like 20 different classes over the last 10 years. And every one of them has some different aspect of my own background that I get to impart to the students and say, I've seen this particular piece in the field, and this is why I need to learn these things about it. Honestly, the first class I developed fully on my own, which I taught as an adjunct at St. Lawrence, was based on all the things I wish I'd known when I got to graduate school, how the fundamentals of ecology had been created. It's really trying to understand why we know what we know. So who were the people who built on the studies that? you take for granted, like you understand how an ecosystem works. Well, who named an ecosystem? Where does the phrase come from? How did we build that concept? And the students are really taking advantage of those moments. And my favorite moment is always when they figure out something that they just totally didn't understand. Um, My friends in college definitely teased me coming from the North Country. I was not particularly worldly and had a lot of assumptions about um, how the world worked. And they would tease when I figured out that the world was a little different because growing up in the North country movies didn't open on opening weekends. So I assumed that a theater near you was a place somewhere else. (laughs) And when I see my students understand some big thing, obviously I try not to laugh when I realize it, as my friends did, but it really opens their eyes like that pineapples grow out of the ground, not on the tree or that, The reason polar bears don't eat penguins is they live on opposite continents, things like that, that they just hadn't thought about. And all of a sudden, it's like breaking through a wall of how to think. And I love that moment.
0: I love your quote that I read in your bio that said, my favorite part of teaching is that moment when something I say or something I connect to blows their mind. And when I read the thing about the pineapple, I was like, really? I had no idea. (laughs)
1: Yeah, showing them a field of pineapples, um, driving between my field sites in Kenya and um, Nairobi, there was a dole plantation. And so I had no idea that's what I was looking at the first time I drove through.
0: From the time that you started in college to now, have you noticed more women entering the environmental studies? Or has that always been a, a balance from your experience?
1: So when I started, environmental studies wasn't really a field you could go into. Um, It was some division of biology for the most part. We hadn't really made the connection that maybe we should be studying in more depth how humans interact with the environment. It was more about just learning how the environment worked. But as I've gone through, more and more of that connection has been built, which is awesome. And now there are even PhD programs in environmental studies. One of the things I've noticed is... My undergrad was actually predominantly women studying conservation biology and organismal biology. And then when I got to graduate school, it started to switch a little bit. The master's program was about half and half, and my Ph.D. program was about two-thirds men and one-third women. And then my department accepted most of the other programs I've gone into are Mostly men. Um, I'm in a wonderful position. The Department of Environmental Studies at SUNY Postam is all women, um, is mostly women and one man at this point, which is great in its own way. One of the other fields that I've worked on that came right out of working on the zebras was um, geographic information systems or GIS. And that is very, very heavily male that when I go to conferences to talk about mapping and GIS, which is a big part of my work with Purple Loose Strife, for the first time I was at a table at one of the conferences and we looked around and realized that the table was all women. We actually took a picture because it had never happened to any of us before. And so that can be very daunting. One of the new fields that I'm just starting to get into is actually drone technology. Um, I'm a licensed FAA drone pilot and that is even more so. There are fewer than 5% women have drone pilot's licenses. And I'm trying to bring that more and more to my students just to say, look, I didn't grow up playing video games. This isn't a natural progression. I mean, I did, but I'm really bad at video games. (laughs) This isn't a natural progression. Like it might be for some young men who play video games and see um, the controllers of a drone as a natural extension. For me, it was a lot of This is the right tool to do my work so I can map large-scale areas of um, invasive plants. And it's been very interesting trying to talk to people about what's the best drones to purchase for what I need and how that process works. I do run into being explained to a lot in a way that can be problematic. But I'm working on it. I'm trying to bring more and more people into the field, and we're building a class to teach students how to fly drones and get certified. So hopefully more and more women will see that as an option.
0: Yeah. I would imagine sitting at that table that day, though, it was empowering.
1: It was wonderful. Like the women were of all ages. Some people, women who were at the very ends of their career at GIS, who'd probably struggled all along. I'm sort of in the middle of mine. And there were some younger students there too. Um, it was so empowering knowing we are starting to push into these different places and being taken more and more seriously in the field and given these opportunities to work with computers and work with maps to make changes. Um, It's a very special time for a lot of that, that it's basically not a taboo to see women doing these things, that you're likely to find someone you can connect to.
0: Yeah. And that's um, attributed a little bit to the push for STEM and STEAM, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we do a lot of pushing towards um, diversity in STEM at SUNY Potsdam across racial and gender divides because people of color are not represented in STEM disciplines in the same rights as white men. And one of the things that SUNY Potsdam tried to do for Black History Month was to make it clear there are people of every race and ethnicity across the board that have contributed to all of the hard sciences, to all of the fields. And they get left out of the canon. They get left out of the textbooks. And so it's our job to make sure that those voices are heard. Um, Like Rosalind Franklin's work with Watson and Crick about DNA was not forgotten. She was an integral part of this. And making sure those voices continue to be heard and remembered as part of this. Again, part of the what did I wish I'd known when I got to grad Mm. school so that I didn't just take on the all-white, all-male, all-European and American canon in the history of conservation. There were other people and other voices.
0: I'm going to throw out three names here. I don't know that they are heroines of yours. Um, Mm -hmm. And talk about maybe their influence on your work. Uh, Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall, Temple Grandin.
1: Those are all amazing choices. Jane Goodall's work, I think she has done the most in a way that I would want to emulate. She has taken her initial field studies and gone as far as she could with them in the 60s and 70s and was able to transform that into, okay, based on what we know about the chimps' behavior, how do we protect them? How do we make sure that they're able to stay and keep going? And then she found a third phase of her career um, with her Roots and Shoots program, trying to make sure kids knew about these things, that this was a bigger issue that everyone was allowed to participate in. Diane Fossey's work is a little questionable in various ways. She was very determined and her passion shouldn't be forgotten. She is an example of how fieldwork can be extremely difficult, regardless of who you are. Mm -hmm. And Temple Grandin's work is amazing, trying to make sure that all perspectives on how we understand what we know, how we can better be more humane when we treat animals for food. Her work is amazing. Um, Rachel Carson is probably the scientist I most identify with. She was able to ring the bell and say, here's where we have a problem. Here's the thing we've been ignoring. And to some extent, that's the work I try to do with invasive plants in the North Country. We're a small area. The DEC doesn't have a lot of resources, and most of those get focused on the Adirondacks. So I'm happy to be working with so much of the Department of Environmental Conservation to prioritize invasive plant research in the North Country to try to make sure we don't lose our native wetlands and we don't lose these areas. So Rachel Carson's probably the one. She didn't get to live to see the influence of all of her work. Her book, Silent Spring, was published and she passed away from breast cancer just a few years later. And I hope she would be extremely proud of all the ways she's influenced women to go into sciences. She was one of the first to work in environmental science at the time and being able to go forward is always impressive. I have a quote that sits on my desk by her that says, I'm always more interested in what I'm about to do than what I've already done. And it really motivates me.
0: Dr. Jessica Rogers is an assistant professor of environmental studies at SUNY Potsdam, and she joins us on this International Women's Day. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful.
0: Thanks, everybody. And all week long, we're going to hear from some amazing women in our communities. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. And we'll see you tomorrow on Community Connection. Well, good Monday morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Community Connection. It's International Women's Day, a day to celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. All this week on the show, we'll hear from teachers, artists, and grassroots organizers, starting today with Dr. Jessica Rogers, assistant professor of environmental studies at SUNY Potsdam, about her work that has taken her across the world. Good morning, Jess. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. You have a long and amazing resume beginning uh, with your work in Kenya in 2001, researching the migration patterns of zebras. Tell us about that. Yeah,
1: Um, it was the only job I got out of college. Um, Mm -hmm. My undergrad advisor was looking for somebody to run his project, specifically looking at how the behavior of zebras was going to affect their conservation. So I moved to Kenya 10 days after graduating and spent 11 months taking photographs, digital photographs with a very um, large digital camera of hundreds and thousands of zebras facing left. So then I could barcode their neck to get individual um, recognition. And then we were looking at early GPS points and trying to prove that this particular population of zebras didn't migrate anywhere. And after that time, plus the previous years of data collection, we were able to prove that this particular population on the central plateau of Kenya did not migrate with the rains like the Serengeti populations Hmm. that we were so aware of. And so that was really going to affect their conservation status. That was a big part of um, pushing me in the direction of linking sort of behavior, either animal behavior or plant behavior, if you will, to conservation. How do we protect them? How do we integrate these ideas together? So I got a really big sense of (laughs) how conservation biology works, um, working in Kenya with this first
0: job out of college. How up close and personal did you get to the zebras?
1: Sometimes very close, but because it's a wild and active ecosystem, there were lions and leopards cheetahs, and most importantly, elephants everywhere. So all of my work was done from the inside. The relative safety, probably imagined safety, of a tiny mm. little vehicle. Mm. So I could get in up to 5 or 10 feet, but I was still in my car.
0: Wow. Life-changing experience, I would think.
1: Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, the best version of this, I was driving through. Um, so the dip between two hills in Swahili is called a luga. Um, we might call it a valley or a stream bed, except it can't, It may or may not have water. And I was driving through one to get to the zebra population on the other side. And all of a sudden I hear this loud trumpet as this elephant, I had no idea was in the trees, wow. comes trumpeting through. And thankfully I was still in second gear. If I'd been in first, I'm sure I would have stalled and he would have crushed the truck. But I made it up the other side, my heart pounding. So lots of field adventures <laughs> that you don't plan for. <laughs> And thankfully, I survived all of them. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, that work set you up for your next job at the Bronx Zoo. You built websites for conservationists in 53 countries, right?
1: I did. I moved from the very rural parts of central Kenya to Brooklyn and then commuted every day to the Bronx Zoo. Um, I worked for their international conservation program. I assisted researchers who lived and worked in, in Asia and parts of Africa. And they needed ways to communicate with donors and with the public to make their um, work really clear. And so I would help them build websites and fact sheets that would be sent to donors. So I got to work really carefully and very virtually with dozens of really amazing researchers who were on the front lines of doing conservation all over the world. Some Americans, most of them were from their respective countries, Cambodians, Indonesians, um, and working with partners in those countries and in the U.S. and Europe. So it was very cool global conservation unit.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that conversation was amazing because it's coming from all these different conservationist perspectives.
1: Right, exactly. Like, the biggest goal for conservation in the People's Democratic Republic of Laos at the time was how do we build the infrastructure so that we can protect our own species? So we spent a lot of time helping to get PhDs and work in master's and advanced degrees for Laotian people to run their own country. And so the program was always designed for WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society, to step away. But the way they devoted the money was to build the infrastructure. So that was an interesting program to try to sell the donors because you weren't, there weren't any fluffy tigers or um, species that were fun to say we're protecting. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're building infrastructure so that the country can make its own decisions on how it protects its wildlife.
0: Uh, Potsdam is where you, you grew up. You came back about a decade ago after finishing your PhD. You're now working with students mm-hmm. on several projects, one I know intimately, uh, one that looks at the invasive species Purple Loose Strife. In the North Country. This has been a long-standing issue for, for decades. What do, you, mm-hmm. what do you like about being in the classroom that you didn't get working in the field?
1: Working in the classroom is such an eye-opening experience for me every single time. Um, I get a new class, and I'm teaching a slightly different topic. I've developed, I think at this point, it's more like 20 different classes over the last 10 years, and every one of them has some different aspect of my own background that I get to impart to the students and say, I've seen this particular piece in the field, and this is why I need to learn these things about it. Honestly, the first class I developed fully on my own, which I taught as an adjunct at St. Lawrence, was based on all the things I wish I'd known when I got to graduate school, how the fundamentals of ecology had been created. It's really trying to understand why we know what we know. So who were the people who built on the studies that you take for granted, like you understand how an ecosystem works. Well, who named an ecosystem? Where does the phrase come from? How did we build that concept? And the students are really taking advantage of those moments. And my favorite moment is always when they figure out something that they just totally didn't understand. Um, My friends in college definitely teased me coming from the North Country. I was not particularly worldly and had a lot of assumptions about um, how the world worked, and they would tease when I figured out that the world was a little different because growing up in the North country movies didn't open on opening weekends. So I assumed that a theater near you was a place somewhere else. <laughs> and when I see my students understand some big thing, obviously I try not to laugh when I realize it, as my friends did, but it really opens their eyes like that pineapples grow out of the ground, not on the tree or that, The reason polar bears don't eat penguins is they live on opposite continents, things like that, that they just hadn't thought about. And all of a sudden, it's like breaking through a wall of how to think. And I love that moment.
0: I love your quote that I read in your bio that said, my favorite part of teaching is that moment when something I say or something I connect to blows their mind. And when I read the thing about the pineapple, I was like, really? I had no idea. (laughs)
1: Yeah, showing them a field of pineapples. Um, Driving between my field sites in Kenya and um, Nairobi, there was a dole plantation. And so I had no idea that's what I was looking at the first time I drove through. From
0: the time that you started in college to now, have you noticed more women entering the environmental studies? Or has that always been a, a balance from your experience?
1: So when I started, environmental studies wasn't really... A field you could go into. Um, It was some division of biology for the most part. We hadn't really made the connection that maybe we should be studying in more depth how humans interact with the environment. It was more about just learning how the environment worked. But as I've gone through, more and more of that connection has been built, which is awesome. And now there are even PhD programs in environmental studies. One of the things I've noticed is my undergrad was actually predominantly women studying conservation biology and organismal biology. And then when I got to graduate school, it started to switch a little bit. The master's program was about half and half, and my Ph.D. program was about two-thirds men and one-third women. And then my department accepted most of the other programs I've gone into are mostly men. Um, I'm in a wonderful position. The Department of Environmental Studies at SUNY Potsdam is all women, um, is mostly women and one man at this point, which is great in its own way. One of the other fields that I've worked on that came right out of working on the zebras was um, geographic information systems, or GIS, and that is very, very heavily male. So that when I go to conferences to talk about mapping and GIS, which is a big part of my work with Purple Loose Drive, for the first time I was at a table at one of the conferences and we looked around and realized that the table was all women. We actually took a picture because it had never happened to any of us before. And so that can be very daunting. One of the new fields that I'm just starting to get into is actually drone technology. Um, I'm a licensed FAA drone pilot, and that is even more so. There are fewer than 5% women have drone pilots licenses. And I'm trying to bring that more and more to my students just to say, look, I didn't grow up playing video games. This isn't a natural progression. I mean, I did, but I'm really bad at video games. (laughs) This isn't a natural progression like it might be for some young men who play video games and see um, the controllers of a drone as a natural extension. For me, it was a lot of, this is the right tool to do my work, so I can map large-scale areas of um, invasive plants. And it's been very interesting trying to talk to people about what's the best drones to purchase for what I need And how that process works, I do run into being explained to a lot in a way that can be problematic. But I'm working on it. I'm trying to bring more and more people into the field, and we're building a class to teach students how to fly drones and get certified. So hopefully more and more women will see that as an option.
0: Yeah. I would imagine sitting at that table that day, though, it was empowering.
1: It was wonderful. Like, the women were of all ages. Some women who were at the very ends of their career at GIS, probably struggled all along. I'm sort of in the middle of mine, and there were some younger students there, too. Um, It was so empowering knowing we are starting to push into these different places and being taken more and more seriously in the field and given these opportunities to work with computers and work with maps to make changes. Um, It's a very special time for a lot of that, that it's basically not a taboo. To see women doing these things, that you're likely to find someone you can connect to.
0: Yeah, and that's um, attributed a little bit to the push for STEM and STEAM, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we do a lot of pushing towards um, diversity in STEM at SUNY Potsdam across racial and gender divides, because people of color are not represented in STEM disciplines in the same rates as white men, and One of the things that Sunni Potsdam tried to do for Black History Month was to make it clear there are people of every race and ethnicity across the board that have contributed to all of the hard sciences, to all of the fields, and they get left out of the canon. They get left out of the textbooks. And so it's our job to make sure that those voices are heard Um, like Rosalind Franklin's work with Watson and Crick about DNA was not forgotten. She was an integral part of this and making sure those voices continue to be heard and remembered as part of this. Again, part of the what did I wish I'd known when I got to grad Hmm. school so that I didn't just take on the all-white, all-male, all-European and American canon in the history of conservation. There were other people and other voices.
0: I'm going to throw out three names here. I don't know that they are heroines of yours. Um, Mm -hmm. And talk about maybe their influence on your work. Uh, Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall, Temple Grandin.
1: Those are all amazing choices. Jane Goodall's work, I think she has done the most in a way that I would want to emulate. She has taken her initial field studies and gone as far as she could with them in the 60s and 70s. And was able to transform that into, okay, based on what we know about the chimps' behavior, how do we protect them? How do we make sure that they're able to stay and keep going? And then she found a third phase of her career um, with her Roots and Shoots program, trying to make sure kids knew about these things, that this was a bigger issue that everyone was allowed to participate in. Diane Fossey's work is a little questionable in various ways. She was very determined and her passion shouldn't be forgotten. She is an example of how fieldwork can be extremely difficult, regardless of who you are. Yeah. And Temple Grandin's work is amazing, trying to make sure that all perspectives on how we understand what we know, how we can better be more humane when we treat animals for food. Her work is amazing. Um, Rachel Carson's probably the scientist I most identify with. She was able to ring the bell and say, Here's where we have a problem. Here is the thing we've been ignoring. And to some extent, that's the work I try to do with invasive plants in the North Country. We're a small area. The DEC doesn't have a lot of resources, and most of those get focused on the Adirondacks. So I'm happy to be working with so much of the Department of Environmental Conservation to prioritize invasive plant research in the North Country to try to make sure we don't lose our native wetlands and we don't lose these areas. So Rachel Carson's probably the one. She didn't get to live to see the influence of all of her work. Her book, Silent Spring, was published and she passed away from breast cancer just a few years later. And I hope she would be extremely proud of all the ways she's influenced women to go into sciences. She was one of the first to work in environmental science at the time and being able to go forward is always impressive. I have a quote that sits on my desk by her that says, I'm always more interested in what I'm about to do than what I've already done. And it really motivates me.
0: Dr. Jessica Rogers is an assistant professor of environmental studies at SUNY Potsdam, and she joins us on this International Women's Day. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful.
0: Thanks, everybody. And all week long, we're going to hear from some amazing women in our communities. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow on Community Connection.